everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. So I'm George Church, professor at MIT and Harvard, working mostly on technology development, but with occasional applications. The technology is typically reading and writing DNA for cells, organs, and so forth, and they're using them mostly for medicine, some veterinary, some ecosystem applications. You're also the co-founder, one of the co-founders of the Weiss Institute. Is that correct? No, I am a founding member, I guess, uh, um, head of the synthetic biology platform. Can you explain generally what you mean by the synthetic biology platform? Synthetic biology is kind of a rebranding of genetic engineering. In principle, it's a little broader and anything that you can do with biology that's not entirely natural falls under that. Genetic engineering was done with crude tools and wasn't really engineering by by most engineering standards, but synthetic biology is. And there are many different flavors. There's, for example, there's some that are aimed at origin of life, synthetic biology, and some that are aimed at organs. The core of it was making synthesizing genomes and synthesizing genetic circuits. That was kind of the core discipline, subdisciplines. More than anything, more than the work you do right now, your life story is quite exceptional. I know you don't mind letting people know that you actually had neurolepsy? I have dyslexia and narcolepsy. Well, what was it like growing up with that? And, you know, your story into getting into Harvard itself is is quite interesting. So we'd love to start off there. And what were you like as a child? Well, first of all, I I grew up in an environment that was almost science-free. We didn't really teach science in classes until seventh grade. To really get educated, I, I left Florida and went to Massachusetts. I didn't know any scientists or engineers family, but nevertheless, I was attracted to it, even though there was no real exposure. I lived kind of on the canals and mudflats on islands, and there was all kinds of slimy things that I was very excited about. Same thing went for my third father. My mother remarried. My third father was a physician. He wasn't really a mentor, but he would inadvertently teach me some of the things that were in his house call bag, big black bag. And I just thought that that Technology was fascinating. So on the one hand, I was very interested in natural history biology and and this very synthetic biology, which was medicine. As a young kid, I was dyslexic, so I could really only look at the pictures. And that kind of made me much more visual. So I was constantly looking for something where I didn't have to specialize. I, I liked every, I liked pretty much every science, math, computers, and so forth. So I was looking for something that fit that gigantic box. And I, and I found it in crystallography, which also was very imaging-based. It was very 3D spatial. We had one of the first computer graphic systems in the whole world. I mean, it's hard to imagine how everything's computer graphic. But back then, yeah. just rotating a black and white image in fake 3D was overwhelming. That required the world's biggest supercomputer to do that. that. The molecule I happened to work on was the first folded nucleic acid, meaning RNA and DNA are nucleic acids. So I t- at one point typed in all the nucleic, all the tRNA sequences that were available at the time, which was not a heroic task at the time because we were so primitive. But I, I just got, I folded them up in the computer and I said, oh, this is great. Let's just sequence everybody. And that was a kind of a bit of a leap from <laughs> doing 8,000 base pairs to doing, you know, billions of people times uh, billions of base pairs each. But uh, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> How long yeah. did the computer take? At that time, the supercomputer. Well, I mean, you would you would spend years solving the structure of the molecule. Then you would spend maybe a day preparing, a, you know, a session where you would rotate or adjust the molecule. And actually, we would often have two of these computers. They were called IBM three hundred and sixty, 
running at the same time to, to, to just to do one display, one big TV screen that was black and white. In fact, it was just a line drawing. Yeah. You know what's interesting? This actually sounds a lot like mining cryptocurrency now, don't you think? It's it's kind oh. of yeah, it's kind of like trying to make sure that you're putting all these codes up there to, you know, just represent one transaction, and then there's this billions of transactions, but you can track right. them all on the computer, which is really interesting because that's what crypto takes now. You need like these two massive computers which are mining yeah. all the time, and it takes years right. to mine. And yeah. Bitcoin, yeah. obviously, there's not a lot left. So all they're doing now is trying to mine it. So the less supply we have, the more expensive it keeps on getting. Have you got crypto? It, two of my companies ha- have uh, pioneered some new applications in, in, in health sciences, in particular in the blockchain public ledger for tracking uses of your genome and then NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And thirdly, you can ask encrypted queries of of non-decrypted data. So in other words, I can share my genome without actually giving you access to it. You can just ask some limited questions. It's called homomorphic encryption queries. Okay, I'm wow. three, those are three things. And I'm sorry <laughs> to use so much jargon, but you started this. Yeah, no, <laughs> no I'm interested. No, I, I, I want to get your NFTs. What's going on with that? Okay. Why isn't that on the uh, public market yet? They did this about a year ago. At the time they did it, it was mainly to raise consciousness about the two other things, the, the public ledger and the homomorphic encryption queries. You may not have seen it, but a lot of people saw the NFT. It was for my genome. I'm sure it's still available. My genome. Uh, but the, yeah, it's for his genome. Oh, okay. George Church's genome, yeah. Uh, how and, much did some, it go for? And some, some work of art as well. But How much did it go for? It didn't go. I mean, they haven't. They, they they're still hanging on to it. I'm not sure what the business model is, but uh, they, oh, they, they advertised released. it heavily about six months ago or something like that. And is it still available? Can we put bids for it at all? I I don't know. I don't know what the status is right now. <laughs> okay, they, they just asked me if I was willing to, to be the guinea pig, and as usual, I'm I'm like the guinea pig in a lot of our experiments. Uh, I'm the favorite guinea pig, so I figured, why not? So you said you had dyslexia. Do you still have it? Neither one of them was, I would say, the worst case. They were mild cases okay. to start out with. And what happens is your brain kind of rewires and you figure coping mechanisms. Yep. And so over time, both of them became less intrusive. Well, actually, narcolepsy got worse as a teenager and all the way in through my starting my professorship. But I've, I've developed a bunch of coping mechanisms. One of them is, A, telling everybody <laughs> so that they don't get insulted by me falling asleep and only eating for one hour for 24 hours because I, I tend to fall asleep. Wow. So you literally started fasting. You started this whole bullshit thing about started. fasting. I think, I think it's I, prehistoric, actually. <laughs> you were behind I have, that I too. Have my own re- I have my own reasons for doing it. You were behind Fair that enough. too. I knew it. I knew you had something to do with fucking fasting as well. <laughs> the burning question right now is obviously COVID-19. So what's going on with gene editing in, in terms of trying to figure out you know, can we create genomes or genes that can prevent COVID-19 in the coming few years? CRISPR is an antiviral. That's its, its, its initial, its evolutionary reason for being. The problem is that it has off-target activity, which for a bacterium trying to kill off bacterial viruses is no big deal. A few bacteria die and, and their brethren are, are, are fine with that. For human pharmaceuticals, it's, it's serious business to have have these things on kind of all the all the time that you could induce them but you know the thing is i think it's kind of like a sledgehammer for a mosquito the best way of dealing not just with covid19 but with pandemics in general is 
testing, masking, and isolation. I mean, it's very simple things that are way faster to adopt than a new vaccine or a new drug or even a new CRISPR. All of those take at least a year to, to work out and another year to get approval. And, that, and that's considered fast. Most FDA approval takes 10 years. But in the case of COVID, we managed to get most of the vaccines, most important vaccines got tested in, uh, in a year. I think the three methods that are completely general and immediately implementable if we had a rational population, and in fact, some parts of the world do have populations that do that very quickly, and, that, and they had 400 times less death. I'm not talking about cases, I'm talking about deaths than we did. The populations that would do those three things, testing, masking, and isolation, had 400 times fewer deaths. So, I mean, that's a, it's not a perfect experiment, but it is consistent with what one might expect. Well, one of, one of the arguments that a lot of anti-vaxxers were giving was, you know, how come this vaccine was created so quickly? And there was a lot of doubt over Oh, It wasn't. The technology took a decade to develop. It's actually uh, Carico, the, the, one of the scientists, she started on it in the 1990s, but as a generic method, a messenger RNA method. Why was it so fast? It's because we're, we're getting, medicine is getting to be getting awesome. Uh, we've got ex- exponential technologies where we've brought down the price of reading and writing DNA by 20 million fold. So you should not be surprised when things yeah. work out. I mean, it's kind of like, well, gee, I'm not going to use a car because it's so much faster than a horse. You know, it's like, those are features, not bugs. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense because if we're, if we're here, de- we're creating designer babies. I, I don't think this is impossible. Hey. Well, designer babies also is another case of a sledgehammer uh, where there isn't really even a disease or, or even a motivation, I think. So, yeah. I mean, if you want, if you want to change your hair color or your eye color, there are good ways of doing that. You know, like I can, I can have three different hair colors, you know, in one evening if I want and pop in contact lenses and have all kinds of crazy looking eyes. Way, way easier than germline manipulation of your babies. Yeah. You know, I think we need to worry about things that need worrying about, like yeah. the next pandemic. Uh, we should be prepared for that. I don't think we need to be prepared for designer babies. Now, that said, was one of the, I think one of the core underlying ethical principles there is safety, and the FDA is tasked with that, but they're not really tasked with really, really long-term safety. That usually takes some time to discover, yeah. like hormone replacement therapy and Vioxx, for example, things that, that even after FDA approvals turned out to have issues. Yeah. And, and the other thing is equitable distribution. We need to make sure that these technologies are available to everybody in the world, even the poorest people. Let's talk about what designer babies are. So, you know, it is in the name, but basically it is a way of or a means of being able to manipulate genetically an embryo. Would I would I be correct in saying that by any chance? So I'm not very scientific. Uh, well, if you if you manipulate an embryo, it doesn't raise quite the same ethical issues with some people. If you do the embryo without affecting the germline, that is to say subsequent generations, that's technically falls under current gene therapy. And there are lots of gene therapies that are currently approved for clinical trials. Uh, some of them are actually even approved. They've already passed through the clinical trials. So doing it in an embryo or fetus makes sense if it's an inherited disease that causes severe early developmental defects, like you know microcephaly, where you have a tiny brain. You're not going to fix that after birth with yeah. some ordinary drug or even extraordinary drug. It's just it's too late. So you need to do that earlier. But I think what people worry about is the heritable nature of it. And I think that 
that's both reasonable and unreasonable. It's reasonable in the sense that it's very hard to do clinical trials that last, let's say, two generations, two human generations. It's just a long, you know, it's 50 year yeah. uh, clinical trial. But there are many, many drugs that could affect you over multiple generations since we know that epigenetics is, is heritable. There are lots of things that we do without uh, the permission of, of the younger generation because they're, they're too young to get permission. Both, not just science, but education, religion, food, all that stuff is dictated uh, until they're old enough to rebel. I, I just think there isn't that much medical need and there's not that much non-medical need. When you say germline, is that what you mean by what's hereditary? Yeah, but not necessarily embryos. So, so embryo will not necessarily pass it on to its, you know, once it grows up and has kids, they won't necessarily have the same thing. But if you put it into the fertilized egg where it's going to go to every cell in the body, including the sperm and egg, then it will pass it on to all of its. So, so you have to be a little more specific that it's germline embryo editing. All right. Mm-hmm. So with germline editing, you would say that, that is, that's where they kind of pick up those diseases, I guess, that come along that would be too difficult to fix later. You could fix them, a lot of them, maybe most of them, without touching the germline. You could specifically engineer the drug and the way you would apply it, the way you inject it, so that it doesn't go into the germline. That could be done. It, and so in that case, embryo and fetal delivery would be okay with, with most people. Oh. Or, or the sort of people that are worrying about germline typically do not worry about fetal and embryo delivery. It doesn't involve the germline. It doesn't involve egg and sperm. Okay. So how prevalent is this right now? I mean, how many people are actually germline? going ahead to do this? Oh, nobody. Nobody. The, the one person, the one scientist in the world who had the audacity to do it was then uh, subject to legal. It was an Asian guy. What was his name? J.K. Hook. So he treated three babies that, as far as we know, are still healthy. I mean, it's possible they would have hidden that information, but I don't, I don't think so. There's no particular reason to expect it or not, which is, in a way, much better than a lot of drugs do in their first trial. The first three people treated with monoclonal antibodies got very sick and almost died, but now monoclonal antibodies are a big thing. Three of the first you know, five gene therapies were fatal in two different clinical trials, but nevertheless, gene therapies back force a decade or later. What did he what did he do for them? Were they all the same? They were from families that father had HIV. There's a standard way of washing the sperm that makes incredibly reduces the risk. But the idea was that both JK Ho and his families came from a culture where HIV was heavily stigmatizing and heavily feared. Some people say it's a solved problem with either safe sex or antiretroviral therapies. It's not really a solved problem. Two million people die a year from, from HIV. Yeah. So puts it right up there with, with malaria and yeah. COVID and so forth. Yeah. So he essentially did the germline therapy. Would that be it? That's correct. He, he, he treated every cell in their body, which includes the, that will include their sperm and eggs once they get mature, and also will include their T cells, which are the cells that, that HIV infects. Yeah. So the idea is to make their T cells, their white blood cell, resistant <laughs> to HIV. So why did he get illegally? Is it just because the ethical issue behind why did he get in there trouble? Was, there, was, there were some issues with how he consented to parents. Obviously, you can't consent to the unborn children. Yeah. But there are many medical experiments that, that have less thorough consenting. Well, there are plenty of experiments that, that involve babies and, and embryos and so forth. And some of them are more thorough than others. I think his consenting to the parents was pretty thorough. I mean, there was 
wasn't perfect, but he videotaped it, spent an hour explaining it. So even if they didn't understand the written materials, there was verbal exchange and it was documented. So I, I don't think that was, I think it's that, that we were, as a society, we were worried about it and we wanted everybody to go slowly and he didn't go slowly. He did have a check, an ethics checklist and he even, you know, recorded some videos of him or, and wrote some paper, a paper on the ethics. So he was, he was aware of it. He was trying to do his version of it, which wasn't necessarily acceptable to everybody. It was, uh, I think it was, there was an overreaction. We were prepped to, to react. And, and I, I think the important thing is evaluating how those, how those children did, you know, are, are they healthy? Are they, are there T cells resistant to HIV? Those are important questions that don't seem to be, those could be answered without any more you know, without any more patients being uh, addressed right at the moment. Was this a person based in China? He, he was, but he was, he was also quite comfortable in the United States. He had, he had done a postdoctoral fellowship for something with Stephen Quake at Caltech, and is that, he's now in San Francisco Bay Area. And he consulted several people in the United States about his plans to do germline. And I think most of them were mildly discouraging, but none of them reported him, none of them, you know, made it very difficult for him to do it. They, they, were, they were kind of lackadaisically uh, opposed. Well, and, and I think one of, the, one of the failures of the system is that we, we have a scapegoat when really we should have had a system in place that would have prevented this rather than waiting until he had done it. So it should have had surveillance, should have had whistleblower incentives and so forth. And we, we, we still don't have those. Well, the curious thing about that is I'm not sure what kind of government support he was getting to do that was that he would go back to China to do it. And he didn't do it in the States because, well, there'd be a lot of ethical issues and the government would definitely, you know, raise that. But him going back and doing it there. Well, he didn't go back to do that. He went back to be an entrepreneur. And his first entrepreneurial activity was reviving a single molecule sequencing device or a DNA reading device that was based on Stephen Quake's, his previous mentor's uh, work. And so there are many things that, that will simply be easier to sell in China. Also, I think he was more familiar with the culture and it's easier to create businesses there. So, and then while he was thinking about sequencing human genomes, he, he kind of got interested in curing them. And so he, he was already in China. He didn't go back to do this. Also, it wouldn't have been any easier in the United States. He, he probably would have gotten put in prison, say. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what I... Similar penalties. Well, that's what I meant. Like, I, I believe in the United States, it wouldn't have been possible at all. I mean, there oh. would have definitely been... It would have come out mm. a lot sooner. I mean, the fact that they, this Maybe. kind of... I mean, he was he was actually rather good at... So the, the, the fact that he did it came out. He was actually preparing for it coming out. He was working with the Associated Press to, to release this. It just got scooped. He did manage to keep private the, the names of the, the patients and the parents, which I think is remarkable considering how much pressure there was yeah. uh, from all sides to discover who they were and get their story. Uh, in the United States, you're right, that, that probably would have been harder to keep secrets are harder to keep yeah and yeah because well social media like things come out a lot quicker i mean your twitter is massive right now so (laughs) i'm not surprised somebody would have tweeted to you and would have asked for your comments on that and suddenly it's all over the place 
Well, actually, if I if I wanted to whistleblow on them, that would be one way to do it. Yeah, but it's probably probably better to go to a government agency. Yeah, Even if probably. You don't know what that government agency is? Go to any one of them. Well, one of the really interesting things I've found about your work, which which personally is more intriguing for me, is the fact that you're well, you're in the work of transplanting genetically engineered pig organs mm. to humans. There's there's a massive wait waiting list for organs. organs so yeah. I just wanted、yes. to. Know how you got into it? Not a lot of people know how hard it is to get organs for organs transplant and how it works all around the world. So I'm、yeah. very curious to know how you got into this project and and kind of where you're at with it. Like I said, my third father at age nine was a physician, and I started watching surgeries at age thirteen on a regular basis.、Uh, so I was familiar with it, but really it didn't become practical or in my face until we invented CRISPR. Like we, you know, a community of many of them affiliated with my lab at one point or another, and then all the people that have been working in the xenotransplantation field—that is, say, transplanting from animals to humans—which had been a field for over two decades already—they invited us to Luhan Yang, my student and postdoc, and myself to use CRISPR on their problem because they. They had tried out the primitive genetic engineering tools that that they had, you know, for the previous twenty years, and could only do one gene at a time. And they picked the best gene, but it wasn't nearly enough. And if they, if you gather them together, each of them had their favorite gene. If you gather them all together, it was on the order of forty some genes.、Uh, so we did. We gathered them all together, and we engineered every one of them, including endogenous retroviruses, which are. Potentially, as, as another zoonotic disease like swine flu or Ebola or COVID, you do not want to have zoonotic diseases evolving inside of an immune suppressed patient. Essentially, all transplant patients, even human to human, are immune suppressed, and so that's a bad scenario for animal viruses to be loose infecting human cells. So, so anyway, we we did everything on everybody's wish list, as far as I know, and those animals are healthy despite having. Up to forty-two germline changes back to germline. They they breed normally and they and they're healthy and then and their organs are being used in preclinical、uh, non-human primate trials in three different hospitals in the in the United States aimed at pancreatic islet cells and heart and、uh, kidney. And which animals are there? Is it just pigs or just pigs? The pigs are the、okay. sort of the right size organs. Essentially, everything we currently transplant in humans could be transplanted pig to human. With, with all these these various mutations, a lot of them make them more highly tolerant. They're, they're like a humanized pig. They're they're much more like the what the immune system of the recipient expects. Why is it that they're so? I mean, is it just that, like you said, the sizing, or is it other is it other things as well? Well, there, yeah. So, so most primates are either too small or. It's ethically questionable to do it, say, with chimpanzees. The chimpanzees are very, very close to humans. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, a, they, they yeah. would make the most so, logical sense. And, and, and yeah, anyway, so so pigs are the right size, and people have gotten used to、uh, eating pigs about three billion a year. So I, I think this is a good, at least, stopgap measure until we figure out how to make human or in vitro organs that don't require pigs, which our lab is working on. But it's going to take probably an extra decade to get. Really high quality human organs synthesized in the lab, and for for an organ transplant, what kind of factors are you looking at when you're trying to match an organ、uh, to put into another human being? 
even from human being to human being? What are some of the factors that doctors and scientists look at? There are mainly five genes, most of which are near one another on chromosome six. They're, they're called major histocompatibility complex or human leukocyte antigens. They have various targeting names, but they but there are five of them that and that you have one each from your mother and your father. So there's a lot of common and oh, and there's a lot of diversity in the population as well. So it's actually pretty rare. I think it's like one in hundred thousand of getting a very good match. Now sometimes they'll go ahead with a less than ideal match. Uh, very often they'll be making decisions as to whether the organ they're holding in their hands that have been shipped at great cost to the you know from one uh, hospital to another and they're deciding whether it's pink enough right so if it's too gray and not pink enough then they won't go through the surgery so the patient will have been prepped for surgery and and they just say no and so i think there's not only a waiting list you know there's all kinds of heartbreaking details that come from not being really not being in control of the source which is which is something that your company is really working towards is well, firstly, increasing the chances of, you know, trying to get a match, but on top of that, reducing the cost associated with it, because it's huge. I, I was watching Joe Rogan's podcast with one of the defectors from North Korea. And, you know, she was talking about what a big need there is for organ transplants. And, you know, a lot of North Koreans are kind of, you know, they used, they say China is one of the biggest markets for organs. And I, I don't know how much of that is true, but some uh, countries did have questionable practices for sources of organs, like prisoners, for example, which is most countries consider unethical. And so I think China and other countries are now aligned with all the other countries of the world and that they, don't, they try to get organs from either family members or recent people who have deceased some sort of brain injury. And, and so when, when people say a heart transplant surgery, like we don't realize the amount of optics involved in actually preparing for it and getting the right organ and making sure that's the one that's got, like we just put it in movies every single time and we go oh that's so easy we're gonna have a heart transplant surgery easy yeah but but the costs associated with it the logistics associated with it are massive and i guess you you're, you're trying to reduce that in the in the coming future so that you know Normal people right. would actually be able to afford it rather than fucking going to space like Jeff Bezos, which I find yeah. totally yeah. useless. Almost, yeah, almost everything that, that we do in my lab has, in addition to all the technology components, has a safety component and it has affordability component, which I think are important uh, ethical constraints and long-term safety as well. And, uh, and scaling uh, options. It, will still, it still will not be as affordable as preventative medicine. So, for example... A lot, of, a lot of liver transplants are because of hepatitis or uh, alcoholism, both of which are preventable diseases. So I think it behooves us to prevent as many as possible. Same thing for diabetes. Diabetes tends to be uh, a middle-class disease where people eat too much or do the wrong things. As we get better at the organ transplant and it gets cheaper and, and more well-controlled, and we can even make organs that are enhanced relative to the organs you get in humans that are, that are resistant to pathogens to senescence, to cancer, radiation, and so forth. So at some point, their organs may get good enough that we do it collectively. I'm not advocating that or predicting that. I'm just saying that once you get to a large market size, then the prices start coming down. But you would have to have automated surgery or something else that will bring down surgical costs. You know, 
you could bring down the cost of gene therapy with just the big markets. So for example, a lot of the COVID vaccines are essentially gene therapy. They're, you know, adenoviral, capsidated, double-stranded recombinant DNA. That's gene therapy, and it's $4 a dose. So that's, a, that's something that we can celebrate that, that uh, previously the most expensive category of medicine in history, $2 million a dose, now is in the same category as $4 a dose. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. Two million dollars a dose. That is ridiculous. And and we're well, getting it for free here. They're rare. And the cost the cost of development and testing are high. And if you're only if only a, a hundred people a year are gonna benefit from it, then, then it's gonna be expensive. Yeah. I don't I don't think they're price gouging. I think they're you know, there's an orphan drug act that specifically not only permitted this but encouraged this because prior to the orphan drug act. It was hard to get any pharmaceutical company interested in rare diseases. Gene editing, you know, you have all these, you know, diseases that could probably be treated just by gene editing. Have you found in your work that sometimes the environment also plays a role in how that disease changes over time and that gene editing might not be able to be as helpful? Very clearly, environment is a big factor. And it makes it doesn't make any sense to say, what percentage environment of genes? It's just some of each. A, a huge factor. I mean, for example, COVID-19 is mostly environment. Most infectious diseases, uh, now there are people that escape, that people, so that's the genetic part of it. So it's some mixture of the two. But medicine is the art of the practical. You, you'll do both. You'll, you'll both do the you know, testing, masking, and isolation that you need for infectious diseases. And you will also do what you can other kinds of preventative and curative. So for HIV, for example, there's these antiretroviral uh, small molecule drugs. So, so you can, and, and they're safe sex, and, and they haven't found a vaccine yet, but that, that, could, that could be another option. So there's usually multiple ways of both preventing and curing, and it's, and it's just the art of the practical you want to do. Ideally, you do it as early as possible, as preventatively as possible, because that's uh, more humane and more cost-effective. So you, we, I mean, we talk about major diseases, like you were saying, with HIV and everything. But what about schizophrenia and mental health? The re- research for most of these things is is easy, is easy to navigate, other than getting funds. Uh, even that's relatively straightforward, especially for such devastatingly, you know, unambiguously harmful diseases. We know a great deal about the genetics of these diseases. Was not not true decade or so ago. In fact, there were a lot of false starts that, that made it. And part of it is because the psychiatric classification wasn't and isn't so great. But now we've transitioned to a, a time where we can, based on a number of genes, we can get a pretty good prediction. So in principle, there's a kind of genetic counseling, which is done very, very early, let's say premaritally, pre-conception, where the consequence of getting a false positive of, of incorrectly classifying a couple as being at risk for having a schizophrenic children, that would have very low consequences. If you have a false positive for a disease that's less than a percent, uh, that means you're, you will only, you'll only be able to date 99% of the population, which is, for most people, quite an adequate number. So even these things that are very complicated and, and hard to get perfect diagnosis, the consequences of false positive, of being overly cautious when you're making, say, dating 
uh, or matchmaking, being overly cautious at that stage is, is a very little practical uh, consequence, but it's a tremendous medical significance because 3% of people are, are devastatingly affected by these neuropsychiatric disorders um, and it's probably a trillion dollars that, that, uh, due to rare diseases in general and psychiatric diseases in particular. The, the, the amount that the current world always has suffered with depression and anxiety. Have you found any relationship between gene therapy and how it could help depression and anxiety in the future? So some people will say that complexes, they'll, they'll, there's this category of complex diseases, which are basically diseases that we haven't come to grips with yet. Most diseases are complex at some level, but uh, there's a certain category. And most psychiatric diseases fall into that category. Height is not a disease, but it is treated medically in the extreme cases. And it is a very complex set of genetics. Thousands of different parts of your genome can contribute tiny amounts to your uh, stature. Nevertheless, the medical treatment, and there's like seven different diseases that for which this is the treatment, is a single gene. So even though there are thousands of genes that contribute in an average person from a human population, you can treat it with one, which is human growth hormone. So that may be the case, or it may be that we get better at delivering multiple genes. So, we, you know, I mentioned how we did, we delivered 42 different changes to the pigs. In principle, we could do the same thing uh, as treatment for disease. So this sometimes called multiplex editing or multiplex therapies or polypharmacy. The point is you're using multiple genes or drugs at the same time. So I think we're learning a lot about these, about the brain, uh, probably do the brain initiative, those involved in, uh, still involved in, and the genomics are just taking leaps forward. So I I think we might be able to address these things. And they're devastating both uh, on a family level and Uh, international level. When you said the height thing, do you mean is this is this going back to people trying to edit the genes so that the child is taller? Is that what you're talking about? No, 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 no. This is this is <laughs> there are medical conditions where your your stature is impacted, and that is considered medically treatable. And so there are seven diseases that I know of where growth hormone is admissible, and there there are even clinical trials that use growth hormone as part of an anti-aging regimen. Yeah, well, anti-aging. The, the, point is, the point is there are non-aging, non, the developmental delayed diseases, some of them I think involve infectious disease. I'm not an expert on this particular topic, but the point is that, that, that there are justifiable medical uh, uses of the single gene for stature, even though when you look at the genetics, it looks like a complex, very, very complex genetics, oh. hopeless to diagnose or to treat. But yeah. Anyway. So I think that may happen with a lot of these so-called complex diseases. They're either going to turn out to be diseases of aging or going to discern, uh, have a small number of genes per person. It may be a large number of genes per population, but each person might have a, a, a smallish number. It's it's a early days on this exponential ride that we're on. Yeah. And and you did mention the HGH, the human growth hormone. So how does it work in, in terms of anti-aging? Many people, Hollywood calls it the magic portion. A lot of people take it and, you know, to remain the same age. Like how much of that is true and how does it help with the anti-aging process? I think it is still in clinical trials. There's a one clinical trial called TrimX, 
which will, is evaluating this. But I think right now there's not very much medical support. It's, there's an awful lot of you know very uh, poor conclusions that are drawn in, in pseudoscience medicine. A lot of them have to do with nutritional supplements or stem cell therapies. Uh, not all of them, but but there are there are a lot that are done without randomized clinical trials. So so if people feel really good after they take their HGH uh, or whatever they're taking, and they know they took it, that's called a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Or, placebo, it's, yeah, it's a good candidate for being a placebo effect. Yeah, that does make sense. So if there was a drug out there, would you take it, George? Uh, well, I do take. I mean, I don't take many drugs, but I do take a statin for yeah. I have high cholesterol. My father died of complications of similar uh, problem. I take metformin, metformin because I'm uh, pre-diabetic and indications. Okay. Uh, and metformin is another thing that is that is sometimes prescribed for as in clinical two clinical trials. Okay, but I'm not taking I'm not taking it for that reason because those yeah. clinical trials are not done yet. Yeah, uh, well, your skin I, looks I, great. I, well, your skin looks great, so I know what you're doing. Unless that's the makeup. Don't pretend. I, yeah. I don't look a day over 120, do I? Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you've covered yourself in this white beard and this white hairdo, but the skin looks like of a 20-year-old. So, Before we actually move away from the topic, I just wanted to ask about the IVF process. Now, do you have much information on that? I know a fair amount about it. I'm not a practitioner. Yeah. Uh, so, nor, benef- nor a beneficiary, but I, I, I know a number of my friends uh, ha- are, are, were IVF babies, and I think there have been maybe 5 million of them so far, ever since 1978 when the first one was done. How does the screening work when it comes to the egg donors, if it, if it was a, a surrogacy, for example, or finding out the match? Because I think there's, there, there's a lot involved. It's not as simple as it's considered i guess and people go through a lot of effort for this well it can it can be simple the, the, the way it was originally conceived uh, was that if a couple was having trouble then you could do an in vitro fertilization where let's say the sperm motility could be overcome by direct injection of a sperm into the egg and so there you're not trying to change anything genetically you're just trying to facilitate something that isn't working by normal uh, reproductive methods. And that doesn't involve a surrogate. It doesn't involve donation from outside the family. It's just the mother and the father uh, yeah. conceived in a Petri dish. Yeah. Uh, and then it's implanted into the mother. Now, the mother has to go through two rounds of hormone treatment, which is not pleasant. First one to get the eggs, and usually they get multiple eggs, maybe a dozen eggs. And then the second one to get her uterus ready for implantation of the embryo that's been developing in the Petri dish. That doesn't always work. I mean, even, even if you, and they've cut back on the number you can um, try it. put in at once yeah. to, to avoid octuplets and things like that. So I think it's, it's one or two embryos now. And so you can go through many rounds of this hormone treatment and uh, implantation. And it could be that the, the thing that's wrong with the fertility of the couple is the implantation step itself, for example. Okay. In that case, you might, you might go to a surrogate, which is, also not that complicated these days. And, and I don't think you need to match particularly. I mean, the fact is a, uh, a developing embryo is, a, is like a transplant. It is, it is not matched the way you would match a transplant. But that's okay because the placental uterine interface is set up to handle that and, and not reject, typically not reject the baby. 
So there is no such thing, I guess, as, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out due to, and this is just something I've heard, it doesn't work out because the actual, the two people trying to make the baby, I guess, are not the right match as such. Well, there, there is, there is a fairly common blood type called RH, and an RH positive father and an RH negative mother is, is not great, and it can cause uh, health issues for the mother and the child. Oh. Uh, usually on the second child, that, that from that, you know, if you have two RH positive children in a row, in modern medicine, that it's known how to handle this with. But, and, and there aren't too many other things like that. It's, it's, it's mainly RH. And that's why when you get your blood type, you usually get ABO, RH, positive negative. There's always this fear, like you, you were saying earlier as well, where you said the transplantation, is a, it's, it's fairly expensive when you say design. Surgery is expensive. You have, to pay, you, know, you have to pay an entire staff. It has to be done in a sterile manner. There's anesthesia. So you, you have to There's so much involved. Pay. You have to pay for a lot of very highly trained personnel. Yeah. Um, that's the cost. And then you've got... Unlike a drug where you just pop it in your mouth. And so it's, it's just done. the manufacturing cost is fully automated. And, and, and therefore, you can get it down to pennies. Yeah. For dose. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like, you know, we're talking about what you said, designer babies, for example, where, you know, it's not a matter of you can just change hair colors or whatever it is, or you can you can change the genetic stuff because, you know... At the moment, we're going through this thing where we're trying to be like accept everyone as we are type thing. And it kind of goes against that as well. If you think about like parents trying to edit, I guess, their child. Is that something you guys kind of in terms of those sorts of, I don't know what you call them, ethics or social issues. Is that something that you're very aware of when you're trying to, I guess, create this, you know, new technology? For every new technology we create, I try to accompany it or precede it with a paper discussing the ethics, yeah. the safety, the unintended consequences, and how we can get ahead of it and work on it. And, and I participate in you know, ethics conferences, and pged.org is an organization that does that. I have an ethicist associated with my lab, associated with some of my companies. So we take it very seriously, but we tend to, to prioritize. So, I mean, it's, some things are urgent ethical and safety issues and others are less so. I, I think designer babies, it's a small market. It's an unclear, there's an advantage. And so I think, you know, the ethics behind why are we not curing malaria or HIV yeah. in poor populations, is more, those to me strike me as more pressing or, or vitamin A deficiency with golden rice and, and the list goes on or, things that involve that involve millions of deaths per year i can just see i can just see celebrities going and editing their child (laughs) i could just see i think i think in all seriousness so so most things that you would want to change you can change with cosmetic cosmetics or cosmetic surgery or something like that and and people do that and it ranges from people that are severely disabled by their facial features to people that are just trying to do do a a little touch-up but the thing that that could uh, be impactful. They could, uh, and one has to be particularly cautious about increasing the, the wealth gap um, would be intelligence. Uh, I mean, I think we already augment our immune system via vaccines, and those are not perfectly distributed. It's not everybody on the world, world access to uh, vaccines, although it's pretty close. 
But with intelligence, I think the most likely way to play out is not through germline, but through our cognitive decline that our aging population is, uh, you know, the children don't want to see their their, their parents go through a, a prolonged and uh, agony-filled uh, decline where they become somebody other than who they were. And so there's going to be a lot of pharmaceuticals and gene therapies aimed at uh, either aging reversal or cognitive decline in, in particular. And some of those might also have unintended or partially intended consequences for people who are not yet undergoing decline, people that are quite healthy, and that might result in cognitive enhancement. And that would not have anything to do with baby germline or anything like that. It's something that you could take at any point in your life. And I think that that will be a more attractive target, both because of our aging population, but also because people, there's a lot more people that, uh, that are adults uh, than there are uh, babies uh, in the given. And, and also, there tend to be people with disposable income. Yeah, and also it would be to do with all resources they have as well, right? It wouldn't just be a right, matter of, right. yeah. But I, I've seen many technologies become so affordable, they're available worldwide. Probably the best example is smallpox. Uh, that was made $0 to everybody on the planet uh, by extinction. A very special case, but we may re- be repeating it with polio and guinea worm and some other diseases that are human-specific. So that is truly equitable distribution of uh, new technologies. And infectious disease ones as well, right? Wasn't COVID one of them as well, in a way? Or did it? No, there's, there, there still are people who, who have not been vaccinated that, that would like to be vaccinated. At the oh. same time, there are people that refuse to, even though they can. It's very hard to deliver new technology. Even $4 a dose is prohibitive for, for supply chain. There are various reasons why people haven't been vaccinated. This is one of our last questions, but I wanted to get into a little bit of detail with it. Plant-based foods or meats, I guess. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? I know Weiss Institute's working on it at the moment where they're trying to create, I think they're even trying to create fermentation-based foods using the, I think it was the greenhouse gases, so that you don't have to use plants or animals. Yeah, yeah. there are many ways to make foods. Uh, uh, microbial sources of foods are quite common. Yogurt, for example, uh, yeah. MG, you know, there's a, they're not that exotic. And, and, and I think there's no short, I'm a vegan personally, and so I have some experience with how easy it is to get food that tastes uh, either like meat or, or better than meat. Uh, yeah. you know, I think, for example, Beyond Burgers, uh, yeah. Possible Burger, are vegan. But they, but I know, I know people that if they're that even meat eaters who prefer them to pretty much any comparable uh, food. But where so do you I get your protein we, from? We have, <laughs> where do you get your protein <laughs> from? That's the forever my, question. My, my what? Where do you get your protein from? Oh, protein. Well, first of all, you don't need that much protein. It's not, people, I think uh, Americans have a fetish for it. Uh, just so, Americans. just so you uh, know, we're trying to. We're we're also vegan. We're just trying. We're both vegans, we're, but we get asked that all the time. You're just, you're just, you're just trolling here. We're trying to here. troll but, you. Uh, but there's plenty of protein in in soybeans and, and yeah. various products like tofu. Uh, that's like forty plus percent protein. Well, um, what you were saying was that Americans have this fetish with, you know, this insane amount of protein going into us to build muscle. And it's it's now, there's obviously, obviously an adequate amount, which is... One- and you don't use all of it either, which is what I, what I find. Yeah, if, you, if you want to build muscle, you're going to have to do some exercise. Yeah. 
Protein is not a replacement for exercise. If you want to have, uh, if you want to have well-defined muscles, you're also going to have to limit your caloric intake. Uh, if you want to have the six-pack abs, you're not going to get that just by, you know, stuffing a ton of protein value. That that will eventually get turned into uh, fat. Yeah, I, I think we we have a tendency to medicalize a lot of things that which really just require good discipline. But I don't think we should make the assumption that we're going to solve everything with discipline because the fact is people don't do safe sex. They don't take uh, vaccines when they should. They don't eat the right thing. There's a diabetic epidemic among populations that, that never got diabetes or at very low rates because they didn't have enough food in the in, you know their ancestral populations. So I think we need to be cautious about uh, eating the right amount. We, just because a little is good doesn't mean more is better. Uh, yeah. You can overdose on quite a number of things. Mm. You know, even vitamins, which seem like, well, how can I overdose? It's well known you can overdose on the fat-soluble vitamins. But even the water-soluble ones have been associated with certain cancers taken uh, mm. for long-term and excessive life. There's a whole market for vitamins now. It's You go to a chemist and it's less medication and more vitamins. It's just everything is a multivitamin. Some are slow acting. Yeah, well, well, that's the other. You can err on both sides. You can eat too much vitamins, just in general principles, but you can also eat, eat too little of the real medicine by eating something that doesn't actually treat the, the disease. So, so if it hasn't been through clinical randomized clinical trials to eliminate the placebo effect, you probably shouldn't be taking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and if it's a food, you shouldn't be taking it to excess because our ancestors were omnivores that had a very balanced or it had a very diverse, diverse diet. yeah um, every now and then we would eat to excess because that's all we had but but generally speaking our ancestors had a very diverse diet yeah so can we really quickly talk about how plant-based meat well there's genetically gonna, modified yeah genetically modified meat gonna work or how does it work overall impossible food is not not re- i mean it's a burger but it's vegan the one part of it is recombinant is they take a plant hemoglobin. So it's not even an animal hemoglobin. It's a plant hemoglobin, and they move it into, into yeast and then put the yeast into, with a bunch of other plants to make the burger. That's my understanding. Uh, and some of my friends started this company, but I haven't really kept up with it. Most of the other vegan burgers, which I think taste as good or better than meat, uh, like Beyond Burgers, don't even have that. There's nothing common about them. It's just recipes. It's just straight-up food Lentils science. And- and I think that's adequate. I, I think, you know, we need to be educated. We need to be resourceful and, ex, you know, explore. It's got a lot of protein in it, things. too. But there, but there are ways of making meat, and there's even some possibility that they could get it down in the same price range, which seems to be important. And by making it animal-free me- method uh, in a, you know, essentially growing in a giant tile reactor, and that... That could be, you could imagine how that would be cost effective. Uh, it's easier to control the contagion when they're not out on the range, although increasingly there's factory farms where you can control the contagion as well. But it doesn't solve all the problems. So, so no. you know, they still are going to have high cholesterol. Impossible Foods doesn't have high cholesterol because it's mostly plants and yeast and kind of has that hemoglobin iron taste to it, the idea. But I, you know, I think we should explore all these, these, these uh, avenues. And, and, and an even more radical one is rather than trying to imitate meat, we can look to ways that we can have even more efficient production of foods 
through either photosynthesis. There's some photosynthetic organisms that grow at a doubling time of an hour and a half. So imagine that you're that that you take a snapshot of your farm, and then an hour and a half later, you have twice as much food. Right? That's how fast these things grow, ridiculously fast. And if we could get recipes for that, I mean, then it would be great for space flight, of course, where you you know where you're. Uh, footprint is very limited, but e- but even on Earth, it could be it could tension if supply chains get disrupted, people would be less panic stricken. They can produce their own foods with, with their own solar panels and things like that, or even without solar panels. I mean, just photosynthesis. So I think it's time to really rethink our food supply. If, if we got more efficient foods, got rid of the animals which take up you know so much twenty times as much farmland as as would if you ate an equivalent amount of vegetable matter. And even got rid of the vegetable and replaced them with these rapidly growing photosynthetic or electrosynthetic organisms. Then we would suddenly free up land for the wilderness, for restoring carbon uh, sequestration and things like that. Yeah, I think the argument's always going to be, is it as good as the real thing in terms of not even just taste? That can be be addressed and has been addressed. There are lots of nutritional studies. Not for most of the nutritional stuff, supplements that people take, but standard nutrition. And we know what it takes to make a healthy person. And it's easy to achieve in most countries. Uh, there are some countries where even a bowl of rice is, is expensive. And that's why the golden rice is such a, a godsend for uh, people that would otherwise get by the natives to killing a million people a year. But in places like the United States, there's no excuse to be eating wrong foods other than bad recipes and or bad training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you go to Panda Express, I mean, let's be honest, it's not the best food. You're back There's to the no excuse. I mean, it, it isn't really that much more expensive to, to build a good meal uh, that's healthy and tastes good. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. We agree with you. We're there with you on that one. And the fact that you say simple is exactly the right note to finish it on because only you can <laughs> call it simple. Yeah. And get away with it. <laughs> Almost everything I do is simple. Uh, yeah. yeah. The laboratory part of it. Yeah. But it was such a pleasure having you and, you know, just giving your time because we know you're really busy with all the work that yeah. you do, especially at the Wise Institute. So we just want to wish you the best of luck and we'll be seeing your work come up in the future generation. So thank you for making such a massive contribution. And, and thank you for helping communicate. Uh, I think it's very important that we have high levels of transparency and communication in both directions, uh, yeah. in all directions, uh, as with, especially with these cutting-edge technologies. So thank you for helping me communicate with uh, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. 